am I gonna die on the table? I didn't understand the risk of the procedure itself and the post-procedure risk. I hadn't directly asked that question because I think I was afraid to know, but when I finally did vocalize that, that was very helpful to me. Welcome to Speak Up For Your Health. I'm your host, Dr. Arkel Giorgio. In this podcast, I have conversations with real patients about how they found their voice, figured out how to advocate for themselves, and finally got the medical care they needed. What is more important than that? Now, you may not have the same health condition as the guests on the show, but you may have the same frustration with your doctor, your health insurance company, or just some other part of the healthcare system. The stories you'll hear are real and relatable, and most importantly, give you the courage to speak up the next time you're getting care. Imagine being suddenly hospitalized because of an abnormal heart rhythm. One cardiologist says, this is really serious and you should have a procedure to correct it. The very next day, a different cardiologist says, this rhythm isn't so dangerous. If you can tolerate it, we can prescribe some medication and you can just live with it. My guest today faced this situation in the summer of 2022. Bridget is in her early 60s, healthy, with no history of heart disease. In fact, she is uber fit and athletic and was looking forward to a strenuous hiking trip in Europe with friends in a few weeks. There was one thing Bridget's doctors did agree on. The decision on whether to have the procedure or just take medication was only Bridget's choice. Enjoy the show. Bridget, the summer of 2022 was a really challenging one for you from a health perspective. And let's start at July 29th, 2022, when at about 6.30 p.m., you sent me a text message that said, hi there, are you back in the country? Do you have time for a medical question? If you had to go to the hospital for a heart condition, where would you go? I'm thinking Abbott. So tell me what was going on at that point. Yes. Well, sorry to send you a message like that, but it was phone a friend time. <laughs> so I had, um, I had gone for an executive physical months earlier and learned that I had an abnormal heart rhythm and I was being monitored. They were considering a variety of procedures either medication or ablation. And I didn't know what any of that meant. So I said, well, can't we just monitor this before we start anything? So they asked me to wear a heart monitor. And within six hours of putting the heart monitor on, my heart went into what, according to the recording device, appeared to be a dangerous rhythm. I was having premature ventricular contractions. It's called BVCs. And the Mayo Heart Monitoring Center called me and told me that I needed to go to a hospital immediately. Were you concerned about this or were you thinking this is just fine? Nothing. I don't need to worry about it. I just need to monitor it, but I'm not worried about it. What was your thinking at the time? It felt sort of validating because I had felt that my heart was not quote unquote normal, whatever that is, in that period of time between 2019 and 2022, I had also gotten an Apple watch and I could never get a sinus rhythm out of my Apple watch. So I had spent just a lot of time thinking like, wow, this is really abnormal, but I was told that I'm fine. So I'm going to be fine. 
Finally, when I was told that, no, your heart is not supposed to be that way, I I didn't go racing immediately because I thought, okay, I've been living with this for quite some time. I've been able to manage it. So I just need to stay calm and determine what can be done, if anything. So you find yourself being admitted. I know you texted me later that evening. You said you were being admitted for this abnormal rhythm. And then, you know, part of the story is the fact that over the course of the next few days, you continue to be monitored, but also the recommendations from some doctors were not completely consistent. So tell me what happened there. In that moment, it it was like I was in the Hotel California. I checked in and they were not going to let me out. And it was very frustrating because the cardiology group was saying different things to me about possibilities and root causes than the electrophysiology group. And I know they were trying to be thorough, but it ended up frustrating me that I felt I needed to translate between the two different disciplines of heart medicine. And as you recall, I called on you frequently during that period and to explain to me things. And I recorded every person that walked into my room and took copious notes so I could finally understand what they were trying to tell me. Just for clarification, a cardiologist takes care of the mechanics of the heart. They understand how the heart pumps and its valves and its vessels. And an electrophysiologist is also a cardiologist. They have the same training plus additional training on the electrical activity and tracks that actually makes your heart beat. So they're all cardiologists, but electrophysiologists have one level extra of training. And you were seeing several different doctors from the same exact group, all cardiologists, but they didn't always have consistent recommendations for what was going on and what you should do about it. Is that right? I think I saw more than 13 medical professionals over the course of a five-day period because it wasn't always the cardiologist. It was the cardiologist on call, and then it was the cardiologist on call's physician's assistant, and then it was their nurse, and then I'd flip over to the other side. So the weekend shift into the weekday And then not always having the doctor physically there, it was some of their assistants made a collage of faces that I had to talk to over the course of the five days. So what did you do to address this frustration? So I did what I guess is sort of instinctual to me when I don't understand things, I start taking notes. And of course, I wasn't feeling that well. Um, I did actually take my laptop and my iPad into the hospital that day (laughs) because I didn't know how long I was going to be there. So I had tools with me that were very helpful. And of course, the phone. And so I started recording people when they came in because you don't know when they're popping into your room and you get 60 to 90 seconds. And so you have to be, what I learned is you have to be ready with questions And you also have to be actively listening. But because I was involved, you're not at your best self because you're already distracted thinking about horrible things. So I would record them. And then after they would leave, I would take notes. So many people have reacted to the suggestion that you record the conversation with your doctor, your provider, nurse practitioner, and they'll say, 
oh my goodness, wouldn't they be offended? Aren't they going to stop talking? What was the reaction when you would try to record them? How did you approach it? How did you bring it up? And what was their reaction? You know, they were all amazing. And I think part of this may be due to COVID and when loved ones were separated and people couldn't come into the hospital, I think the medical profession just got more comfortable with access in a virtual sense. But when they would come in, I would just say, hey, I'm going to record this because this is all news to me and I really need help understanding what you're saying. And to a person, they said, fine. That's great. Did you ever find that what you thought you heard real time sounded different when you went back and listened to the recording later so that you were really pleased that you had the recording and could clarify what you thought you heard? Yes, it was very helpful. And further, it helped me be, I think, a better patient because the things that I was not understanding or afraid of, I was able to then turn around and articulate in questions that then they could address me very specifically about those things. So it really helped us understand each other better. So we know that you got the ablation. You've mentioned that. But prior to you deciding that you were going to get the ablation, you were getting differing opinions even about whether to get the procedure or not. And I know that when you and I talked during that time, you were really struggling with what the right decision was. How did you navigate through that? One of the electrophysiologists that flowed through my room said, look, if you can tolerate this, you can probably live with this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, my heart feels like it's going to come out of my chest. It does make me lightheaded sometimes. And I'm a pretty athletic person. So I started thinking, well, is this selfish if I get this procedure? Or am I just sort of overreacting to it? And that was going on in my head because in my mind, I had this good, bad dyad. Like, I'm either going to live or I'm going to die. But of course, that isn't how it was. It was a very big gray area. You know, what was my tolerance? What was the level of risk? So on and so forth. So to answer your question, starting from that, which that was probably about a day two in the hospital diagnosis, you know, you could live with this. I started to look at all of the other things that need to be considered. Um, You know, could I tolerate it? What was the probability of risk? Did I want to have a life of medication or did I want to have a life free of medication? And through the course of the hospital visit, I learned pretty quickly that the medication was not holding the line. In fact, I could argue that the medication was felt like it was actually making it worse. I couldn't get out of my bed without having the heart monitors go off. All of the nurses on the floor knew me because I would have to tell them when I was going to get up because they were calling for code, you know, when I would get out of my bed or if I would want to walk down the hall to try to get outside. So I just thought, no, I can't. This isn't normal. I can't live with this. I don't want to be subjected to chronic medication, even if it was working. And then the frosting on the cake was that there was a nurse's strike looming. And so I was thinking, gosh, I'd really like to know who these surgeons are. I'd like to figure out who's the best, you know. And yet if I left the hospital that week, the ability to get back in to get the procedure may have been months in the making. And when being in the hospital, I kind of had gold card status. Like I could just go down, schedule it and have the procedure and be done. 
So there was so much uncertainty in the end, I decided to try to make the best decision, just move forward and not have a life where I was stuck with chronic medication. Most people in the situation that you were in would A, be terrified, and maybe you were, but a lot of people would be terrified and then paralyzed. And in my experience, what I've seen a lot of people do in that situation is get so paralyzed that they just say, well, what would you do? Well, what would you want for your wife or your husband or your child? Instead of thinking through what are my objectives, what are my preferences, what's going on in the nursing environment that could impact my ability to get a procedure if I get discharged and need to come back? Did you ever just say, what would you do? What would you recommend for yourself? And or how did you take that step to sort all those things out? Because it's pretty complicated to make the decision to get that ablation. Yeah. Rather than kind of the conversation of, well, if this was your mother or sister, what would you recommend? I remember distinctly having a conversation one day. There was one um, PA, physician's assistant, to the electrocardiologist that I had seen probably, I think she came through my room three times. So she was the one that I had seen the most. And, you know, she was like, hey, if you want to get this scheduled, we can get it scheduled. You can do it tomorrow. And I was like, oh, I just don't know. And she goes, well, well, what are you thinking? And I said, you know, what I'm thinking is I'm terrified. I'm terrified about what is the downside risk. And that's when we finally got into a conversation of, what were the risks of the procedure? Because I had been so much looking at, well, what if I don't get the procedure? And then it was, well, what if I do get the procedure? So for me, it was finally being able to sort of vocalize the unspoken fear and being talked through that was the thing that allowed me to make that decision. So just so I understand, what was the unspoken fear? I thought, am I going to die on the table? I didn't understand the risk of the procedure itself and the post-procedure risk. I hadn't directly asked that question because I think I was afraid to know. But when I finally did vocalize that, that was very helpful to me. And it turns out what I recall, and again, this is you know over a year out, so my, my mind is a little fuzzy, but... The procedure has a 3% incident of risk of all of the physicians in Abbott that had performed this procedure in the past. There had been zero mortalities. The number one complication is due to infection at the site where they put the catheter into your body. And so I was like, 3%, hmm, that, that still sounds like it could be kind of big, but then understanding what the nature of the risk was and how it was managed, it gave me sort of a freedom to say, okay, there's been so many people that come through this. I don't need to be as afraid of this as I was. People listening probably don't have ventricular tachycardia. Hopefully they don't, but they could have any number of conditions where they might be faced with a choice between different approaches to their condition. Did you like having a choice or was it more stressful? Would you rather have had 
a doctor or every doctor say, nope, this is what you need to do. You don't have a choice. Or do you think that it was good that they gave you all of the different alternatives and options? I think choices are important and mandatory. I think everybody always has choices. And if somebody's told they don't have choices, they probably ought to go talk to other people. That would be my opinion. Having said that, the most powerful thing for me is when the professionals at hand tell you why. Why are these the choices? And the why can only be informed after you or the patient articulates their priorities. So I I think medical professionals, whether it's mental health or physical health, they deserve to know what's important to you. And that is the most powerful idea, I think, to really make healthcare be caring. What's important to you and why? And then when the physician speaks to you, that they speak to you with a notion and a range of options, all backed with why is this one option I'm presenting to you? And that's when things work really well. How would you recommend people think about figuring out their preferences and priorities at that more granular level so that it can be helpful toward what medical path to take? Because if you just say, well, I just want to get better, that that's not helpful. And that's most people's immediate reaction. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't remember where, but I read an article a long time ago about how to make like complex decisions. And sometimes decisions need to be made when you're kind of in an emotional state of, you know, anger or fear or whatever. And as I recall, the way the article went is what you should do before you make that final decision is you should think about 10, 10, 10. So in 10 minutes, what do you think the best decision is for you? In 10 months, would you make the same decision? And in 10 years, would you still make the same decision? And I I think that can apply to this medical situation as well, because for me, I got admitted. um, It was a shock. I thought I was being monitored. And all of a sudden I'm told you have to go to a hospital. You're at risk. I'm like, okay, 10 minutes. That's scary. I want this to go away. 10 months. I had a trip planned where it was going to be a fairly athletic hiking trip. And I really, really wanted to go on that trip. The whole backstory to this too is earlier in the summer, earlier that month, I had contracted Lyme's disease and ended up fainting and breaking my nose and my foot in that. And so when that happened, I thought I am going to get on that hiking trip no matter what. So now 30 days later, I'm in a hospital being told I might need to have an ablation. And I'm still thinking, gosh, darn it. I want to be on that trip. So that was a big 10 month goal. And then finally, 10 years, that's where I get to the, I've seen people and I've, I've, you know, cared for older people and the pillboxes they have. I just like, the more I can do to ward off prescriptions for as long as possible, I would really like to not have to be dependent on anything. So that was my 10, 10, 10. 
such amazing advice. And I'm going to put that in the show notes so that people can just reference back to that. And what I also want to point out is that when you ask people what their preferences are, another reaction is, well, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinician. I'm not clinically trained. How could I know what my preferences are? And I want to point out that all of your preferences were not clinical. It was about your travel, your lifestyle, just how you want to live your life. And so preferences and priorities aren't medical preferences, although one of them is how much risk am I willing to take? And you can get that information through your own research by talking to your doctors. But so much of preferences are completely personal and only things that you know about yourself and a doctor would never know about you. So when we ask, well, what would you do? You're almost asking a doctor to know and understand your preferences, which of course it's impossible for them to know. Totally. I totally agree with that. And because I don't have that medical background, one of the skills that I do have, which can probably be very frustrating for others, but if I don't understand something, I will continue to ask questions because, and this is where I believe that many people and patients will serve themselves better. If you don't understand something, you have an obligation to keep asking the questions until you do understand it. And the medical professionals, I think, have an obligation to help you and get you to the point of understanding. And if they can't do it, then they should find somebody else to help translate for you. And that is what is, I think, so exceedingly important. And again, back to my experience, everybody I talked to was was excellent And it was my ability to continue to ask those questions that got me to the point of peace in my decision-making process. Jumping ahead, you had that trip planned. Talk about how that was a month after you had your ablation. Yeah. So the ablation was uh, just crazy. Like you walk in there and again, for years, I hadn't got a normal sinus rhythm on my Apple watch. I walk out and I've got sinus rhythm on my Apple watch. And I'm like, oh, wow. It was such a binary, you know, an on or off experience. I was like, this is crazy. And then you, you know, you come home and literally within 30 days, I was climbing a mountain and it was just really, um, I don't know. It was, it was just so joyful to have that opportunity to do something that I had set my sights on. And then knowing that everything that had happened and being so thankful for everybody who helped get me back to where I could go do that trip. It was amazing. Oh, that's so awesome that that happened that way. So as we wrap this up, you mentioned that Earlier in the summer, you had Lyme disease, you fell, you broke your nose, and you have an upcoming surgery for your nose. And I'm wondering if the experience that you had around your heart and what you learned from that to advocate for yourself, has that influenced or impacted how you've approached getting the care that you want and need for your nose and your nasal surgery? Yes, absolutely. I guess my takeaway experience from last summer and the whole heart situation is that you got to do your due diligence, right? What are your goals and objectives? In in this case, I have had the luxury of time to sort of premeditate thinking about what kind of procedure I needed. I went and got four different opinions about how people would pursue 
fixing my nose. And I also looked at their background in terms of their, their medical training, the kind of patients that they take on, how specialized are they? Sometimes you want a generalist, sometimes you need a specialist. And so I had that luxury of time to go do the due diligence, not procrastinate on making the most and best informed decision I could for me. So I am, uh, I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm very confident in moving forward with the plan. How long do you think you spent doing that research and due diligence? Total number of hours. Well, I'm looking at the manila folder beside me right now, and it's about an inch thick. Um, it's entitled Nose. um how many hours i would say probably 25 to 35 hours wow over over the course of a year because the unfortunate thing is when you break your nose if they don't correct it immediately then it has to wait it has to set for six months before anybody will even look at touching you Add to that the extreme backlog that so many physicians and physicians' offices are facing, and I couldn't even get in to be seen for six months. And then when you schedule surgery, it's another six months. So I've had a lot of time, but I didn't procrastinate. I would say do the research early because you can always choose to defer the actual event, but get the homework done. That is such great advice. I was involved with a company some years ago that did a study that looked at how long do people spend researching their medical provider. And they compared that to the amount of time people spend researching the next refrigerator they're going to buy, the next cell phone plan they're going to sign up for, or the gym that they're going to enroll in. And the time that people spend researching their refrigerator, their cell phone plan, and their gym far exceeds the amount of time people spend doing research on the person that's going to put a knife to their body. So applause to you for doing that. 25 plus hours is going to serve you well. You'll have a great outcome. And, you know, complications happen. Hopefully it won't happen for you, but you'll know you did everything you could in your due diligence to get the best outcome that you could. And that's, that's all that you can really ask. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think too, unlike the you know, looking for your next couch and ordering fabric swatches, or what about that next microwave? You know, the medical system still doesn't operate that way. So that's why I think you have to be willing to invest more time to say, now, how do you think about this? Because the information isn't readily available, number one. Number two, if it is available by one provider, it's not comparable because the the consumer translation tools just haven't been there to compare one thing to another. So, you know, be kind to yourself, go research things, be proactive. Well, what a great end. And my last question is going to be, what recommendations do you have for people on how to speak up for their health? I would say it's have your questions at the ready and demand to understand the why behind each answer. Understand the why. Bridget, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Wow, what a dilemma. Some key takeaways from Bridget's story that might help you speak up for your health. Record the conversations with your doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, especially if you're in a situation when you're seeing multiple providers and feeling overwhelmed. Just make sure you tell them in advance and explain why you're doing it. 
Articulate your priorities. They can be financial, social, physical, cultural, spiritual. Only you can do this because priorities are personal. Do your homework when facing a medical decision instead of getting paralyzed by choices. Have your questions ready and demand to know the why behind each answer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Speak Up For Your Health. If you enjoyed it, I hope you leave a rating and review, recommend this podcast to friends and family, and share the link on social media. If you have your own story about finding your voice and advocating for yourself, share it with me. I would love to hear it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Speak Up For Your Health is produced and edited by Jenny Lee Park and myself. Music is by Alex Tepper. Cover art is by Sean Sutton.